I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 120. This is the the second in a 15-part series of the the Psalms of Ascent. The songs that Israel would sing as they would go up to Jerusalem and would worship the Lord. Um, They were commanded, Exodus 23, Deuteronomy 16, three times. Um, Just just checking there. Um, Three times throughout the year, all the men were to appear before the Lord and to worship in the place which He had designated. And eventually that became Jerusalem. Um, God said, that's where I will dwell. And you come. And so I'm I'm trusting and hoping that uh, these psalms will help us as we prepare our own hearts for worship each Sunday morning. And this morning we're in Psalm 120. But before we... Before we actually even look at that and, and read it, I want us to sing a little song. I know that most of you know it. Um, and let's just sing it together. It says, As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. Let's just stop right there. That is from a psalm. Who knows what psalm that is from? Psalm what? Psalm, Psalm 42, verse 1. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. And we often sing this song, and it's really good that we sing this song. It, it, it speaks about just a heart's desire in comparison with a, a deer that's longing for the, the water brook. But I, I fear that many times we can miss the original intent As you read the rest of the psalm, you find out that the psalmist was really longing for God. He was like a deer that was scampering about through the woods, running from his foes or whoever's going to hunt him. He's running through the woods and galloping and running around and kind of walking around. All of a sudden, he finds himself in the woods someplace far away from the stream. And he's very thirsty and he's longing for that water of the stream, but but he can't get there. He's got to go and find it. All the while, he's thirsty. Listen to the rest of Psalm 42. Or actually, not the rest of it, but several verses. It says, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? He's just saying, I'm thirsting for you, but when will I come and appear before you? My tears have been my food day and night. While they are saying to me all day long, Where is your God? In other words, he's facing some difficulty. People are saying, well, where's your God? He's not rescuing you. He's not delivering you. And all day long, he's crying, longing for God. He says, these things I remember and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with a voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude keeping festival. In other words, I remember I used to be in church and I used to go. But I'm prohibited from going now. I'm, I'm, I'm gone from that. I long, I'm away from that. I can't. But I remember and I reflect and I long for that. That's what Psalm 42 says. It says, I, I'm like this deer who's, who's thirsty in life, longing for the, for the drink, but I can't get it yet. And I'm longing for God. And the psalmist is really in the humdrum of life, away from God, facing the ridicule of enemies, longing for God, and longing with people of God in the assembly. But currently, he's distant from God. He's distant from the, the people of God. 
And he longs to be with the crowd worshiping. But he is far off. Well, that's the picture that we get in Psalm 120. The psalmist, I believe, is far from God, meaning that he's far from the blessing of God. He's got difficulties coming upon his life. He is far from the people of God in the sense that he, he's not near Jerusalem. He hasn't, he hasn't gathered there, but, but he does have a longing to get there and to be with God. That is why I've entitled my message this morning, Far From God. He's just far from the blessing of God. He's far from the peace of, uh, people of God. And he's longing to be there. Well, let, let's read our text. And, and those, are all, those are all hints and subtle and you might be able to see it. Verse 1, In my trouble I cried to the Lord. And he answered me, Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue, which shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you? You deceitful tongue, sharp arrows of the warrior with the burning coals of the broom tree. Woe is me, for I sojourn in Meshech, for I dwell among the tents of Kedar. And too long has my soul had its dwelling with those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. First thing we notice here in the psalm is that he's in trouble. You can see that right there in verse 1. In my trouble, I cried to the Lord and he answered me. And we see the nature of his trouble in verse 2. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. He was in trouble from verbal attacks that came upon him. Apparently, there were those who were telling lies about him. Apparently, there were those who were deceitful about him. Now, there is no way of knowing who these people were that were saying these things. There's no way of knowing what exactly they're saying because, unlike Psalm 122 that we looked at last week, there's no superscription that tells us who. How good it would be if we could look back and to see the historical situation of who it was that, that spoke these things, and we could put it in a, in a circumstance in, in life, but without the superscription, like many of the Psalms, we can't put it back in a situation in life, and therefore we can only use the parameters of the Psalm to describe and understand what was happening, and we can apply it even in our ways when we feel similar hurts and trials. But all this to say, here's what we know. Lies were told about him because we see lying lips in verse 2. We see people were t- speaking, seeking to tear him down with this deceitful tongue, and he was feeling the pain. You ever felt the pain of lies? If you have, you know the pain. When someone lies about what reality is, then you begin to be misunderstood by other people, your reputation begins to be damaged. And people began to deal with you as if the rumors which are false are true. And it's painful and it's hard. If you've been there, maybe a family lie. Maybe someone else in church has lied. Maybe someone else in your neighborhood has lied about whatever. Just deceitful. They're just trying to bring you down with the tongue. Maybe a coworker at work, in order for them to get a promotion, has lied to the boss about you. Or <clears throat> he can go on and on in terms of how we can look at it. But, it. but just he's being attacked verbally. And you can easily understand why the psalmist then prays that God would deliver him out of his troubles. That's my first point, seeking deliverance. That's what the psalmist is trying to do in verses 1 through 4. He, he desperately wants out. He desperately wants rescued from the lies being told about him. Now, notice that it wasn't. He was physically being assaulted by other people. Rather, he was being spoken against. 
nor was he in danger of death, nor was he facing the violence of others, nor was he in sickness or in weakness. No, he was troubled by what others were saying about him. And I just say that that, that can hurt. I remember having an opportunity one time. I, I was in California and was flying home. And I happened to sit next to a gentleman who was big in the Christian world. Uh, he, had a, he had a great ministry which, which grew up and got big. And I'm not sure. It's just probably 30 years ago. Faced some slander and some lies. He considered them slander and lies. Right? The truth-seeking people basically smashed him, smashed his wife, destroyed him and his whole ministry. And, and I remember at that time I was meditating on Psalm 27. Um, about if armies encamped against me, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? And, and, and I began to talk to him about the worst thing you can face in life is death. And he said, no, I, I disagree. The worst thing you can face in life is utter slander against your name. And yet you don't die and it's not over. You're still here and you're still pressing on. And just to speak about you, just tell the hurt within him. Proverbs 18.20 says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. You can destroy people with your tongue. You can give life to people with your tongue. You can build up or you can tear down your tongue. Now that our tongues may not look like hammers, kids, but our, our tongues are like hammers and nails that can, that can build up. Or they can be really sharp like knives and they can go out and they can tear down. The book of Proverbs says that the words of the righteous are a fountain of life. That is, they are, they are precious and life-giving. Words that come from the righteous mouth are to be valued like choice silver. There's nothing more valuable than, than righteous words coming from a righteous person. They are sweet like honeycomb. So are the words that build up. But with his mouth... Proverbs 11, verse 9, the godless man destroys his neighbor. The words of the wicked are like violence, and his mouth calls for blows. Proverbs 15, 4 says that a soothing tongue is a tree of life, but perversion in it crushes the spirit. We, we, we can either bring life with our tongues, or we can crush the spirit. Parents know that you can do that with your kids easily. Why do you think the warning to fathers in Colossians chapter 3 is fathers do not exasperate your children? It's because you can with your words. Demanding a standard, speaking against them, speaking down. Why do you think it is in Ephesians chapter 6? Speaking of fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. How you provoke your children to anger? By being angry. By being angry at them. And how is your anger manifest? Mostly by your words. How you speak. The psalmist here is being crushed by perverse words. The well-known saying that says, Sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. You ever heard that before? Yeah? Austin, you heard that before? No, you haven't? Okay. Conrad, you heard that before? Sticks and stones will break my bones. Names will never... what, what's, what's the verdict on that? Not true. 
that words hurt and they can hurt deep. I've seen people crushed by words spoken to them. I've seen people in tears because of what was spoken to them. I have seen people recall words from years earlier and still feeling the hurt of those painful words that were spoken to them. And they're easily remembered because they were so hurtful. Proverbs 26.28 is so true. A lying tongue hates those it crushes. And, and so, by the way, I just need to put application here. And I say this. Be careful the words you speak. Choose them wisely. I've heard people say that they have spoken words that they have forever regretted. And if you've spoken words you regret, boy, seek forgiveness and seek grace and apologize and confess when those words are wrong. But know that we all can crush each other with words. But we also can give life. And we can build up with our words and we can edify. And so I just say this, work to be a builder with your words. Dads, encourage your kids. Moms, encourage your kids. Ephesians 4.29 Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it may give grace to those who hear. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. It's not merely swear words. It's, not, it's, it's derogatory words ought never to proceed from your mouth. It's words of complaint. Philippians 2. Do everything without complaining. Words of complaint ought never to come from our mouths. Words of unjust criticism. Words of deceit and falsehood. Words that are meant to tear down and destroy. Just don't use those words. And Paul would say those are not at all to come from our mouth. But rather the call of God upon our lives is to use our mouth and our tongue and our lips to build up and to edify, giving words of compliment where compliment is due. Giving constructive criticism in love. I was criticized this week by someone who um, was very patient in his or her words towards me. It took about half an hour. Affirmed love, affirmed um, affection for me, affirmed commitment to me, affirmed and, and voiced words of criticism. Those are spoken in love. And no animosity between me and this person. And this person's right in many ways. I sought counsel outside. So what about this person? What, they said it. And just I'm saying I've confronted in love in a wonderful way. That is building up and hopefully to edify. Words to build up and edify are words of encouragement. There's so much discouragement in the world. We need encouragement. We all do. Words are helping people with your mouth. It's interesting, we've been going through Romans chapter 12 in our fighter verses. If you're not involved in that, that's okay. But Romans 12 is what's been on the mind of, of many of us. And uh, just even thinking one of the things that we prayed through uh, here this morning was this, contributing to the needs of the saints, Romans 12, 13. And, and, and it struck me as we were praying this morning in our, our prayer meeting that you're invited to, 9 o'clock each Sunday morning, I was thinking about that, that there are many times we can meet people's needs with our words. 
I mean, we, we oftentimes think about meeting people's needs. Oh, what checkbook thing can I have? Or what can I do? Or what can I... But we can do that with our, our words because there's the downcast soul. Right? We can speak words of life into that soul. and We can pick them up and help them. We can guide them and direct them. We can encourage them when they're down. Oh, and as Romans 12, Yvonne and I were speaking about this this last week because this is our verse last week. It says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And it says, outdo one another in showing honor. How do you outdo one another in showing honor? I, w- I, was, uh, I was telling Yassar about uh, the man who was a missionary to uh, Africa. And he was telling me one time about how when they walk through the door, they, they try to give honor. And they say, no, you first. And the other person says, no, you first. And they say, no, 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 you first. And the other person says, well, no, no, you first. Maybe that's why nothing gets done in Africa. I'm not exactly sure. But, but it's all like, no, 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 you. I want you to give the honor. No, no, I want you to give you the honor. And that's what should happen in our home. We should outdo one another. We should honor each other with our lips. You should honor your wives. Your wife then should, no, no, no. Uh, whatever you said about your wife should come back even higher. And, and then you should come back even higher. Just continuing to outdo your wives, your family, your brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, outdo one another in honor. At home, it should be this one-upmanship in terms of expressing honor to each other. It's what we've been meditating on these past few weeks in Ephesians, in Romans chapter 12. And yet it's hard. It's hard. I know that out of my lips, he who restrains his tongue is a perfect man. I had some circumstances yesterday where I said some things. It's just like, you know what? That didn't quite work right. That, that was not right. I, I tried to and even something I tried to do, Yvonne told me about it. And I said, well, I guess that wasn't right. And tried to. It's hard. Our words. But that's our aim. That's our, our goal, right? Is to use words to build up. You realize words can also be the means of giving grace. As Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. You may give grace, the grace of God, to people by your lips, by building them up. Oh, may we, Rock Valley Bible Church, be people who give grace with the words of our mouths. Well, that's exactly the opposite of what the psalmist was facing. The psalmist was facing those who weren't being bu- building him up, but those who were tearing him down. The words that were spoken to his enemies were, were coming upon him. And, and he was discouraged and, and downcast and, and in trouble and in difficulty and longing for God to deal with these people. And being one of the songs of ascent, I, I do believe that the psalmist longed to be in the place where he wouldn't be verbally abused. And I think that's somewhere Psalm 120 fits here. He longed to be among the people of God, giving praise to God, rather than being far from the people of God and being torn down by such hurtful words. And he even says that in verse 3 then. He asks this question. What shall be given to you? And what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? Now, there's a lot of poetry in this psalm. In fact, I think this psalm is the most difficult of all the psalms of ascent. So I'll be very happy when I'm done with this message that we can put Psalm 120 away because it's difficult. 
difficult here. What, what, what is verse 3 referring to? Is he referring to his own tongue? Or is he referring to another person's tongue? And, and I do believe that he is speaking about others' tongue, the deceit that is coming upon himself because you've got deceitful tongue at the end of verse 2, you've got deceitful tongue at the end of verse 3. Same thing being talked about, and so I think it's the same context. He's longing for deliverance from this deceitful tongue. And so he says, what shall be done for this deceitful tongue? I think what verse 3 is, is a cry for vengeance. Verse 2 is a cry for deliverance. I think verse 3 is a cry for vengeance. It's a prayer that says something like this. Lord, what are you going to do, O Lord, to those who are bringing deceptions my way? And the point here, by the way, is he's not taking the matter into his own hands. He's entrusting himself like Jesus. When Jesus was being reviled upon the cross, what did he do? He uttered no threats nor was any deceit coming from his mouth, but he entrusted himself to his Father who judges righteously. He gave an example for us. It's exactly what the psalmist is doing. He's not pursuing and going after these liars and slanders, waiting upon the Lord to deal with them. As Romans 12:19 says, which we will get to in a few weeks in our fighter verses, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Yes, though I'm far from the people of God, though I'm far from God, though I'm, I'm far from where He dwells, yet I will trust in the Lord to deal with those people. And I think verse 4 then fits this way as a recommendation. He's saying, what's going to be done in this deceitful time? Here, here, here's God, my recommendation for you to do. And again, it's poetical. It's my best guess. Many of the commentators take it exactly this way. Sharp arrows of the warrior with the burning coals of the broom tree. Two word pictures. Let's deal with the pictures first. Sharp arrows. Now, we know what sharp arrows are. How many of you, boys and girls, have shot a bow and arrow? Good. So you know what an arrow is and what does an arrow do? It penetrates a target. It can kill an arrow can. So we understand what a sharp arrow is. That's something penetrating that can hurt. And the burning coals of the broom tree. We don't have broom trees around here. And what in the world is a burning coal of a, of a broom tree? Well, broom trees were desert plants, stood about 15 feet tall, not so tall, because then they lose a lot of moisture, right? Sucking up a lot of moisture from the ground just to exist. But when you burn the roots of this tree, they burn with a hot fire and they last a long time. The roots of the broom tree are still used by Arabs today. It's charcoal. It's coal for heat as well. And and so how do we understand these phrases? Well, I'm not sure, but I think it goes like this. The psalmist is crying to God for a recommendation about how God can give vengeance back to these people who are lying and deceitful against Him. So, I get this. Psalm 64, consider this. Verse 3 speaks to the enemies who have sharpened their tongue like a sword, who have aimed bitter speech like an arrow. It's a similar situation, right? It's just facing the speech and hurtful words of others. And then later in that same psalm, the, the psalmist says, Psalm 64, verse 7, but God will shoot them with an arrow. In other words, what they planned will come upon them in the exact same way. It's like Proverbs 26, 27. He who digs a pit will fall into it. And he who rolls a stone, it will come back to him. In this case, he who aims bitter speech like an arrow will be pierced by the same an arrow. And I think also this burning coals of the broom tree, I think it's just wishing that they would face the difficulties, the toils and trials of heat, perhaps even an allusion to hell. 
Spurgeon says it better than I. Swift, sure, and sharp shall be the judgment. Their words were as arrows, and so shall their punishment be. God will see to it that their punishment shall be comparable to the arrow keen in itself and driven home with all the force with which a mighty man shoots it from his bow of steel. He goes on, The slanderer shall feel woes comparable to the coals of the broom tree, which are quick in flaming, fierce in blazing, and long in burning. And he shall feel sharp arrows and sharper fires and awful doom. I think that's what the psalmist is saying. This is so hard it is. And he's saying, God, bring vengeance upon them. It's called the precatory psalm. It's all over the psalms, wishing that God would repay the enemies. Well, at this point, it would be good to return to verse 1, which I skipped over quickly because verse 1 is really the jewel of the psalm. I, in my trouble, I cried to the Lord and He answered me. And, and again, it's difficult to interpret it. Does this mean that, that verses 2 through 4 have already been experienced? In my trouble, verses 2 through 4, I cried to the Lord and God delivered me. Or is verse 1 talking about some other event in which God was faithful? And now in this event, verses 2 through 4, God, I'm just entrusting you and I'm confident that you're going to deliver me this time. We don't know. There's not enough detail. But we do know this, that at one point he was in trouble. He cried to the Lord. The Lord heard his cry and answered his request. And I just say this. God is in the business of answering people who cry out to him in their trouble. God is in the business of answering people who cry out to him in his trouble. In fact, all you got to do is open your Bible and read your Bible and you are going to read about many, 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 many people who are in trouble... They cried to the Lord and God then answered them and took them and helped them out of their trouble. So let's just let's just talk about a few. I'm not sure how many you got. Maybe ten I've got here. Just real quick. Jonah. Jonah, the prophet of God. God called him to go to Nineveh and cry out against their wickedness. But Jonah ran away from the Lord, refused to obey. As a result, he got on the ship and eventually was tossed overboard and was close to drowning the Lord used a large fish to rescue him. And from the stomach of the fish, he testified. This is Jonah 2.2. 2, I called out of my distress to the Lord and he answered me. It's like the same thing the psalm says. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol and you heard my voice. Jonah was saved from the danger of the sea and went on to bring God's message to Nineveh. God rescued Jonah and God also rescued Nineveh. When Jonah came and proclaimed that word of condemnation, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown, the, the people of Nineveh heard that message, believed in God. They called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. The king issued a decree that, that people should turn from their wicked ways and from the violence which is in their hands, that who knows, God may turn and relent. And when God saw that they turned from their ways and cried out to the Lord in their distress, listen to Jonah 3.10. When God saw their deeds, they turned from their wicked way. Then God relented concerning the calamity which He has declared He would bring upon them. And He did not do it. Nineveh was spared because in their trouble they cried to the Lord and He answered them. God is in the business of answering people who cry out to Him in their trouble. David, you remember him? Anointed next king of Israel by Samuel the prophet after killing Goliath. He gained a mighty following and such matters enraged Saul, the, the present king. And so that Saul oftentimes went to try to kill him. And, and sometimes he was even out in the wilderness trying to pursue Saul. But David would not touch the anointed. 
But on one time in Psalm 18, verse 3, he said, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. I call upon the Lord and he answered me. David knew what this was. God is in the business of answering people who cry out to him in their trouble. Hezekiah, remember him? The king of Israel. When Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, was coming against him. And uh, Sennacherib sent this, this man, Rabshakeh, to be the messenger. And he stirred, tried to stir the people of God against Hezekiah and even spoke some lies. He said that Hezekiah was deceiving you. He's leading you astray, right? None of the other nations God's delivered them and Hezekiah's God is going to deliver you. And so exact same setting. In fact, one commentator I read said that this was written by Hezekiah and was in the circumstance when Rabshakeh was coming and deceiving the people because he was with deceitful words. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord at the very end of his prayer. This way he says, 2 Kings 19, 19, Now, O Lord, I pray, deliver us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. And soon afterwards, Isaiah came to Hezekiah and said this, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you've prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard you. So Hezekiah prays, and God hears, and God delivers. 186,000 Assyrians destroyed on one night, struck by the angel of the Lord. 2 Kings 19, verse 35. Hezekiah was in trouble. He cried to the Lord. The Lord heard. The Lord answered and killed his enemy. How about the people of Israel? God is in the business of answering people who cry out to Him in their trouble. They were in bondage of slavery in Egypt. And you remember that in the bondage of their slavery, they just cried to the Lord. It says in Exodus 2, verse 23, their cry went up to the Lord. And God heard their groaning and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the sons of Israel and He took notice of them. Their cry came up. God heard their cry. He looked down. He took notice of them and delivered them from slavery in Egypt. God is in the business of answering people who cry out to Him in their trouble. Do you remember Esther and the Jews? Haman conspired against the Jews to have them all killed, all Jews across the land. This was, this was Holocaust before Hitler. Exactly the same thing. They said, both young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, seize their possessions as plunder and have them all killed. Legal extermination of the Jews. That's what Haman says is going to go out through all the land. And then at one day, all the Jews in Susa were summoned to fast and seek the Lord for three days. Then Esther would go in and talk with the king about what happened. And God's hand of favor was upon them. When, when Esther went and talked with the king, he saw what happened and reversed the course. Turned the tables. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, they were permitted to destroy their enemies and to take whatever plunder they wanted. That's God hearing the cry and answering. God is in the business of answering people who cry out to Him in their trouble. Or Psalm 107. Do you remember all those unnamed saints? This is a psalm that has four stories in it. And every story is exactly the same. There's people in trouble. They reach the end of themselves. They cry out to the Lord. The Lord answers them and delivers them from their distress. He tells, first of all, of the, those who wandered in the wilderness and found themselves hungry and thirsty. And it says in Psalm 107, verse 6, They cried to the Lord in their trouble and He delivered them out of their distresses. 
Next, he tells the story of prisoners in misery and chain, had nowhere else to turn. Psalm 107, verse 13. They cried out to the Lord in their troubles, and he delivered them out of their distresses. Psalm 107 next tells of the foolish souls who were afflicted and drew near to the gates of death. And Psalm 107, verse 19 says, They cried to the Lord out of their troubles, and he delivered them out of their distresses. Then he tells of sailors who went down in ships and found themselves when the storm came that their souls had melted away and they were at their wits' end. In Psalm 107, verse 28, they cried to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them out of their distresses. People across all gamuts. Psalm 107 just, just, just takes all the biblical history. And, and even in the future, this is how God deals with His people. He's in the business of answering people who cry out to Him in their troubles. When they reach the end of themselves and they have nowhere else to turn and they turn to the Lord, in my trouble I cried to the Lord and He answered me. In the day of Jesus, do you remember the leper who fell down before Jesus said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean? Do you remember the Canaanite woman who worked her way through the crowd just to touch the edge of Jesus' robe? Do you remember the woman who continued to cry out for her daughter, Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, have mercy on me. Even when the disciples said, get away, get away, stop bothering him. They said, Lord, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Do you remember the blind men who cried out, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. Listen, the Lord healed all of them out of their troubles. you remember when the disciples were on the sea in the storm, fearful of drowning, and they cried out to Jesus, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And Jesus stood up, said, Hush, be still, and the sea was calmed. The disciples were in trouble, fear of drowning, at their wit's end, and they, just, they cried out. Jesus rescued them. Do you remember when Peter began to walk on the water? All was well. And so he looked at the wind and looked on the water. And they began to sink. Simply cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately the Lord stretched out his hand, took hold of him and helped him back into the boat. Remember the thief on the cross? He was being crucified. I don't know. He was right or left of Jesus. And uh, he's crying. He was in his trouble. He was dying soon. And he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus saved him. Truly I say to you, Today you shall be with me in paradise. And I just say to you all, I, I don't know. I know what's going on in a lot of your lives. There's some I don't know what's going on in your life. Is there trouble in your life? Do you have some kind of pains in your life that you simply can't bear anymore? Are there situations in your life you have no idea how to solve them? I know there are problems in some of your lives. I have no idea. How to solve them. And I, I like being a problem solver. And I can't solve I don't have no idea. Are you feeling the pains of hurtful words? Maybe these things are coming upon you. Do, you. do you feel that pain? Well, I just say join the chorus and cry out to the Lord. And, and know that in your trouble, cry out to the Lord. And He will answer you. Because God is in the business of answering people who cry out to Him in their trouble. Maybe you're here today and you're just plain far from God. Maybe you're here in the flesh, but all intents and purposes, your spirit is far from here. You might as well be in Las Vegas in your spirit. You might be in Los Angeles or in New Orleans. Your body's here, but you're just far from God. Have no interest in God. Your heart for God is little. Your heart for sin is great. I just say cry out to the Lord. The promise of Scripture is this. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10.13 Quoted from Joel chapter 2, verse 32. Also quoted by Darren today. 
Acts 2, verse 21. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Believe in Christ. Trust in His forgiveness. Come into His presence. Seek deliverance. That's what the psalmist was doing. It's what he was seeking. And it's what the psalmist found. It's good news. Verse 1. In my trouble, I cried to the Lord. He answered me. He did deliver me. Now I'm in this other situation. Maybe same situation. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from this. I think he was trusting that he was going to find deliverance. That's my first point. Seeking deliverance. Well, in verses 5-7, through seven, we find Jesus, we find the psalmist seeking peace. He was seeking deliverance in 1 through 4. He's seeking peace now, 5 through 7. We're going to see a subtle shift here also. That 1 through 4, his problems were more personal. We're like trouble, come against me. In verses 5 through 7, his troubles are more community, society oriented. There's much more of a, of a trouble at large rather than specific trouble against him. And I trust you'll see that. He says, Woe is me, for I sojourn in Meshech. I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long as my soul had its dwelling with those who ate peace, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. And there it is. Seeking peace. At the end of verse 6, beginning of verse 7. I, I'm for peace. I'm for peace. I am seeking peace, O Lord. But I'm not finding it, because even though I'm for peace and I'm trying to promote peace, Therefore, and difficulties and troubles are, are coming upon me. I think that's a picture of the psalmist who's far from the people of God because in the community of the godly, you're not going to seek peace only to find war. In the community of godly, you'll seek peace and find peace. But he's, he's apart. In fact, we see, verse 5, two geographical references. One is in Meshach and one is in Kedar. Now, none of these are in Israel. Okay, Meshach is located in Central Asia, Asia Minor. Modern-day Turkey, up north, uh, would be northwest of Israel. And then Kedar is located in Arabia, modern-day Saudi Arabia. That is southwest, southeast. Northwest to southeast. And even if you know just a little bit about geography, you recognize that these locations are like thousand miles away from each other. These are like a long ways away from each other. And in the ancient world... Many months of travel apart. So you've got to say, how can the psalmist dwell both in the land of Meshach and Kedar? Here's my one word answer for that. Poetry. He's not talking about literally being in Saudi Arabia. He's not talking about literally. He is using those words metaphorically, picture-wise, about typical pagan people. As one commentator says, these, these words are general terms for the heathen. You see, it's not so much about geography as it is about ethnicity. That these are pagan people and I feel like I'm in these sinful places. One commentator says that these names are used symbolically for a merciless people. The psalmist felt that his enemies were ruthless. Like the people of Meshech and untamed like the people of Kedar. The Greeks would have called them barbarians. We might call them vandals. You don't need to know much about history and geography to discern this because that's what verses 6 and 7 say. They're just far away from God. Too long has my soul had its dwelling with those who hate peace. I am for peace, but they are for war. And regardless of exactly where they were and exactly what the people were like, the psalmist felt like an alien in a strange land, far from the dwellings of God. 
And I, and I do think as one of the songs of ascent that this is the point of Psalm 120. They were sung as people went up to Jerusalem to worship. And Psalm 120 is the beginning of the travel as far away as you can get in a faraway land with people whose hearts are far away from God. And I tell you, it only makes his heart long for the people of God all that much more. And I just say this, we in America can relate. We are, I think very much, a post-Christian nation. We've been founded upon godly principles. I believe many of our founding fathers were Christians. Many of them were merely deists. Many of them moral, at least understanding the sinfulness of man, the existence of God, and how we need to be as a nation to honor God. Godly principles founded. But as the years have progressed, obviously we have drifted, like many social institutions, like many churches. And I say it's especially true of our generation. It is shocking how much our generation has drifted. What began as a, in the 1960s as the sexual revolution, we've begun to see its logical conclusions. Homosexuality, same-sex marriage have become mainstream. Just this past week, New Jersey, Rhode Island became the tenth state to allow same-sex marriage. More and more states are allowing them, or just even, even five years ago, we had a, a president who outwardly said, "Defense of Marriage Act, we will defend that, not for homosexual marriage." In four years, that changed. The, the whole tide is going. If you can just look at the administration, we have other, maybe future presidents, people running, who've all changed on that view. It is, it is vogue in society today to be for this. And I do believe that this cultural revolution that we are in the midst right now is over. I mean, the momentum is just too strong to overturn. It seems like every week some famous person is coming out of the closet and all the media just hails him as a, a hero, unfeigned support. This week it was Jason Collins. Former senator, center for the Celtics, traded late in the season to the Washington Wizards. First athlete among four major sports, NHL, NBA, MLB, and NBA. First of them among all the major, four major sports to come out. And right on cue, all the Noel figures are giving them support. Hey, wait on. Magic Johnson, Kobe Bryant, Nancy Pelosi, both the Clinton and Obama families, all four this happening. And here it is, to speak against the homosexual agenda in this day and age, to face the wrath of many. So, it came out here with Jason Collins. After that announcement, ESPN gathered two of its prominent uh, reporters, Elsie Granderson and Chris Broussard, to discuss this announcement. These men are friends, but they are as far across the political spectrum as you could ever be, or the moral spectrum as you could be. Granderson, openly gay, Chris Broussard, outspoken Christian man. They're friends. They've worked together for years, but they are far apart on their views. They had a 13-minute conversation about the reality of a gay man in modern-day sports. They had a mediator who was directing the question and asking the questions. Directing the conversation, asking the questions. First eight minutes, very much in agreement. They just spoke about the reality of having a gay athlete in sports. They spoke about today's climate, how things are ripe for this to happen. And they talked about how supportive the sports community is. And they spoke about the question of a locker room and just all the dynamics around there and whether this man will be able to play. And they both agreed. If he's got game, he'll still play. 
And then eight minutes into the conversation, Chris Broussard said this. He began to express his own views on the matter. He said, I'm a Christian. I don't agree with homosexuality. I think it's a sin. I think all sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman is. And LZ knows that. And look at how gracious he is. He and I have played basketball. We've played on basketball teams together for several years. We've gone out, had lunch together. We've had good conversations, good laughs together. He knows where I stand. I know where he stands. And just like I may tolerate someone whose lifestyle I disagree with, he can tolerate my beliefs. He disagrees with my beliefs and my lifestyle, but true tolerance and acceptance is being able to handle as mature adults and not criticize each other and call each other names. Elsie kind of took offense at that, insisting that he himself was also a Christian. Well, just to let you know, I also am a Christian. This gay man said that. And the meteor said, well, Chris, what do you think about that? Can't, basically, the question was to Chris Poussard, can you be a homosexual and be a Christian? Public stage. Here's what he said. Personally, I don't believe that you can live an openly homosexual lifestyle and openly premarital sex between heterosexuals. If you're openly living that type of lifestyle, and the Bible says you know them by their fruits, that it's a sin. And if you're openly living in unrepentant sin, whatever it may be, not just homosexuality, adultery, fornication, premarital sex between heterosexuals, whatever it may be, I believe that's walking in open rebellion to God and to Jesus Christ. And I would not characterize that person as a Christian because I do not think the Bible would characterize them as a Christian. And then firestorm broke out. Right? Because you can't in today's you cannot say those things and be unscathed by the media. As soon as you say those things, you are going to be shot at. He's been called a bigot, a homophobe. There have been calls to suspend him. Petitions have been signed to get him fired. Where he's been working for the past decade as a stellar reporter, um, he has put out things, what his views are. He's a strong Christian. I heard him even interviewed on a, another interview that kind of asked him about this. And he was just off the top of his head, just describing why homosexuality is wrong. And, and he said it almost, not these exact words, but just like this. He said, well, Romans chapter 1 speaks about how it is unnatural and how God gives people over like that to their sin. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says that neither fornicators, idolaters, nor homosexuals, nor thieves of the covenant will inherit the kingdom of God. And so it's wrong and it's clear that it's unnatural and those who are living that way are not Christians. They won't inherit the kingdom of God. And he, his, his biblical understanding is, I don't know much about him, but it is deep and strong and he's just, he understands the Bible very, very well. But if you speak against it, the media is going to, it's going to come after you with a vengeance. You cannot speak up about the sin of homosexuality without getting in trouble. And that's just not the big media on the national stage. That includes work. You try making an issue at your work. You try making an issue at a public school. You try making an issue at any public institution. And I don't care how peaceful you are. I'm not sure. I don't care how, how much you even say, yeah, he's my friend and we've talked about it and we've helped, we've, you know, we can live and coexist together, but I strongly disagree. As much as you try to maintain peace, it's not going to work. Your words against the sin will turn to vitriol against you. We may profess to be a tolerant society, and indeed we are, unless you express your views that what someone is doing is wrong and is sinful. And then you discover that we aren't so tolerant after all. Because our understanding of tolerance has changed. It used to mean I disagree with you completely, 
But listen, I'm going to fight to the death to see that you can say and express your opinions. That's what tolerance used to be. And today it means you must approve of everything that I do. So tolerance means we're not we're tolerant of everybody except those who are intolerant, which doesn't make sense. It just means this. You cannot hold our convictions without others turning against us. I don't know how hard you try. And that, I think, is exactly what the psalmist is talking about. Verse 7. I'm for peace, but when I speak, they're for war. Even if I speak peacefully, even if I try to try to smooth it as much as I can, when I speak the truth in love, they still are coming after me with war. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we find ourselves in constant friction with society. There are many things our society does which we would have differently, whether that be prayer in schools, the 1950s was taken away, whether it be hanging the Ten Commandments in the courtrooms or nativity scenes on public property or someone saying Merry Christmas at work or whether it's abortion and now homosexuality. If we say that abortion is murder and homosexuality is sin, we will be censured and hated and untolerated. Our society is moving in a secular way, just like I think he's saying, I'm dwelling in Meshach, I'm dwelling in Kedor, I'm, I'm dwelling in the, in the most worldly parts of the world, and I'm speaking, and they're just coming after you. You ever feel like you're under attack all the time from our society? At some point, you might well say, like verse 6 did with the psalmist, too long has my soul had its dwelling with those who hate peace. The remedy to these things, do you see it, I hope? is to be with the people of God and away from the society which is tearing you down. And that's where the Songs of Ascent are headed. They're headed up to Jerusalem, the city of peace. And I just say what Jerusalem was to David in the Old Testament, the church is to us. And I just say this, the church ought to be a refuge place for the people of God. From the world, the worldly philosophies, the secularism that's coming in, the fighting, I'm for peace but there for war. It needs to be a place of refuge. I think about in the days of slavery in America, African-American church down in the South, when, when given the opportunity to worship in the church, you know what happened? They worshiped there for hours and hours and hours. Why? That was the refuge. That was where they were free. That, that was then the, the place of safety and peace. Whereas out in the world, they were brutally mistreated. Awful. But that was a place of, of refuge and safety. I remember I met Yvonne at uh, the campus of UCLA. Not your most Christian-friendly environment. University of California, Los Angeles. And uh, there was a, a Bible study there of about 100 students that then were all part, 90% of them then went to Grace Community Church on Sunday mornings as well. And it was a wonderful thing. But it was interesting that when they gathered for Friday nights, it was after fighting and battling their secular professors all the way throughout the week and then finally finding their refuge. And there was such joy and such happiness and such eagerness to worship God because finally they left Kedar and Meshech and had come to Jerusalem. And they had their chance to worship the Lord. And I think that Rock Valley Bible Church ought to be this place. We can deal with the difficulties and the battles in the world. And we come to Rock Valley Bible Church and we find safety and we find peace. That's what he's seeking for. 
And my, my dwelling's been too long with those who ate peace. But I want, I want peace with the people of God. And that's exactly what Paul tells us. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling with which you've been called. In other words, you are a believer in Jesus, right? All your sins are wiped away. He saved you by His grace. You are now no longer strangers to the covenant. You've been brought in. It is the mystery that you Gentiles now are fellow heirs and fellow partakers of the promise. Now that with that understanding about God's great love, how He, how he chose us and how, how He loved us and His power towards us is unbelievable. After that, walk worthy of that. And what's a worthy walk look like? With all humility... And gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. A true fruit of salvation means safety and security and seeking in humility and kindness and gentleness and forbearance a place where Rock Valley Bible Church be a place of peace. Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You know, we as Christians, we, we stand in this difficult battle because we can't compromise. Okay, this homosexuality issue, we cannot compromise on that. We cannot be unequally yoked with the world. First John chapter 2 says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. We, we, can't, we can't be there. But the, the scripture also calls us on the other side not to extend animosity towards the world either. We need to be seeking peace. As Romans 12:18 says, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Hold your convictions in such a way that if at all possible, you're still going to find that peace in the world. And it's many, many times where what we believe about God is just not going to happen. It's just not going to work. But we need to make sure the blame is them, not us. So balance between convictions, but don't run the way of animosity. Run the way of kindness and grace. That's what won the Roman Empire and that's what we need to do. And, and our solution is this, is finding peace in the house of God. So this psalmist may be far from God and far from the people of God, but he's longing to come into the nearness of God. And you don't have to travel a big, long trip three times a year. You can come every Sunday. You can meet together throughout the week and how convenient and wonderful it is. So may we seek the nearness of God. Let's pray. Lord, as Asaph says in Psalm 73, how his feet had almost stumbled, how his steps had nearly slipped. But yet you are good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He said, as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Father, you are a refuge here this morning. And I pray that we would find delight and joy and happiness and peace and safety here among the people of God, those of us who love Jesus. That it would be so different than the world that this is a place that we would all long to be. This is a place where we would assemble gladly. I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. Because it is so different than the world God, may we not be like the world, but may we be different from the world. God, loving each other, serving one another, outdoing one another in honor, giving preference to one another. God, let brotherly love continue. God, that men might know by that that we are your disciples. So help us in these things, O oh Lord, I pray. 
We love you and trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.